coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We crack open Vault 7 and are a little let down by what's inside. Then we've got one more reason you should already be using ZFS on your server. And just when you thought you could trust your phone again, we've got the story of Android malware pre-installed. Then it's your feedback, a ridiculous roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on March 14th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. Joining me this week, and every week, it's our host, Dan. He's always got something new in his rack. What do you have for us this week, Dan? And welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello. Um, new today is a Dell PowerEdge 610. Hey, that sounds fancy. Um, it was gear that was no longer required by a friend of mine, and he very kindly gave it to me. Um, do you have a picture of it? Yes, I photo? do. Let's check this out. Let's let's try Twitter. Boom. Ooh, Twitter? beautiful. Twitter? Yeah. Found um, on my yes, desk. That was found on my desk. Um, I like it. It's very quiet. It, it's louder than a laptop, but it's quieter than my switch. Okay, that's um, that's actually a pretty pretty good threshold there. Yeah. Now, if you go to the next graph, if you go to the next image, I had trouble with one of the ears. It was bent, and you got to read this from bottom to top. Because they said they aren't available, and then they gave me a link. Then they deleted that tweet, <laughs> and then put in the other tweet. And I have a feeling that someone said, oh, no, you shouldn't be posting URLs straight into, whatchamacallit, eBay. But I went to eBay, found the link, and bought that stuff on Friday, and it was here Monday morning. Or, sorry, Monday afternoon. So I was very pleased with that service, both from Dell and from the unnamed eBay seller. Yeah, that's now. Great. What is interesting is this PowerEdge 610 uses less power than the tower case it's replacing. Really? That's bring up awesome. the power bring up the next image please. There we go. Hey, look at that so, a graph. This is produced by Libra NMS and it runs off the S NMP output of the uh, APC UPS. So over on the left, you can sort of see where I was running, and then that power spike is the Dell running while I was in the DRAC configuring things, and it, all the fans were running at full tilt. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then it dropped down, and then it stayed lower than it was before I powered off the tower case. Yeah, look at that nice and new steady state. That's beautiful. And I'm really pleased, pleased, very pleased with that. The jumps there are uh, each line is one tenth of an amp, or sorry, one fifth of an amp. Each one of those lines, so it's it's not as jittery as it sounds. It's just very right. We're looking at it really close to the, the measurement. Yeah, exactly. Fine's the perfect yes. word for that. Oh, wow. So this thing had a SAS card in it, and it's destined to become a tape library server. 
In fact, if you swap over to the thing here, there we go. This cable that you can see arching up over here, that's the SAS cables that sort of get swapped from the case on the right behind the Tetris blocks. That's the tower case, which is now powered off. And the uh, below the Tetris blocks, you can see the the um, uh, console uh, KVM, and below that is the 610. So that's why they, I have yet to do the, the rewiring of, of that cable. So it's just hanging out right, right in front, yes. but uh, that's yes. okay. Yeah. You know, that's one of the nice things about having a, having a rack just to yourself is, you know, I don't want to tidy up this weekend. I'm too excited. I want to play with my new hardware. I want to set it all up and you can come back to wire management and make it look pretty next week. I, I want to do that very soon, though, because it's very... <laughs> Very annoying and frustrating. Yes, I know how that like itches just right in the back of your head. You're like ah, thinking about it. It's don't right have time I can now. See it. You I can see, see it. it now without. You're even showing head. it off to the whole wide internet. So that's pretty. Everyone can see it. it's very embarrassing. <laughs> exactly. Ah, so speaking of things that are embarrassing, let's get this. Let's get this first story going because it's uh, should be embarrassing for some people. What's first up this week for us, Dan? Well, first up is Ars Technica, and I've. I've taken a liking to a lot of the stuff they put out lately, especially this one, not because of the target, but because of how they found it and how they suspect it got on it. Basically, malware was found pre-installed on 38 Android phones used by two different companies. Talk about fail. Wow. Now, the companies are not named. So we don't know. We don't know who to who where, to where the phones were sourced from, or who they were used for, or more importantly, who the targets were. I'm assuming this is. I, I'm guessing that this could have been added just because. Oh yeah, these apps are nice. Let's put them in. Right. But they're malicious apps. So that doesn't that does not hold water. Yeah. What kind of what kind of apps are we talking about here? Okay. So let, let's start off in here first. Going through here. Now hold on something going on here all right so basically it's a commercial malware scanner um was used by businesses and what they did is they took these phones and they found the malware because it was on there this is three dozen phones well three dozen 38 close enough belonging to two unidentified companies and this is a blog post came out on friday by checkpoint software and they are the makers of a mobile threat prevention app but the malicious apps were not part of the official rom firmware supplied by the phone manufacturers but they were added later somewhere along the supply chain now we're not sure where but in six of the cases the malware was installed to the rom using system privileges which is a technique that requires the firmware to be completely reinstalled for the phone to be disinfected so you've got to wipe that phone entirely. You can't just uninstall it. It's in the firmware. Wow. Yeah, that's that's nightmarish. So it, it's not just an app. It, it, it's been it's, it's like in the firmware. It's got its fingers deep. Yeah. So even if you didn't like it, you couldn't deinstall it. It's like those <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? Apps. Yeah, it's like those frustrating apps that come in your phone that you didn't used to be able to delete. It kind of flips it. You know, it's like we talk about how, you know, we were just talking last week, you know, how like, the iPhone is really locked down, so you you know there's some safety for the end user here, and so a lot of these Android phones. But it that does not help when you have a lockdown phone that you can't wipe and you can't, you know, the bootloader is locked and it comes with malware. That's just that's crazy. And it was installed by we don't know who. We don't know who. Yeah, exactly. That's also very concerning. Ugh. And 
most of the malicious apps were info stealers and or they displayed ads on the phones. That's not so bad, but information stealing is bad. Now, one of the apps was mobile ransomware known as Slocker, which uses Tor to conceal the identity of its operators. Now, almost all of the phone, mo the most common name I see in this list of phones is Galaxy, like Gal Galaxy Note 2458, Galaxy S4, S7, uh, Galaxy Note 3, Note Edge, Tab S2, Tab 2. Um, there is a Lenovo and there is an, is an Asus. Yeah, the Zenfone. Two Lenovos. Two Lenovos. And a Samsung? Where is the Samsung? Oh, no, the Zen, Zenfone. Sorry, the Asus one. Zenfone. Sorry. I misheard. So they didn't disclose the names of the companies that owned the infected phones. But there was an earlier post that included Nexus 5 and Nexus 5X, but those models were removed. They didn't explain why they removed them. So maybe it was just a false positive or they got it wrong. Um, so I, I said earlier, I wasn't sure if these people were targeted or if it just happened. And that was their conclusion as well. Um, it's not clear if the two companies were targeted specifically or if the infections were part of a broader, more opportunistic campaign. It, it could be just as simple as someone intercepted um, a, a shipment and carefully unpacked all the phones, did their dirty deeds, put them all back in, and then sent them on their merry way. Because that's been known to happen to hardware before. Yes, very much so, right? Uh, that's why some companies are doing dead drops or other things try trying to get around that. The usual supply chains can't be trusted. Yeah. There is a case there for a while where, where switches were intercepted and then altered and then <laughs> sent on their merry way. That was not good. Yeah, especially when it's the level of firmwares and things that you have just no way as the external end user yep. to verify. Yep. You have no yep. control over it. And it might be hard for you to catch, too. Mm -hmm. How would, yeah, what are you going to do? Have, you've got to have something watching the egress Yes, right, exactly. So they do go so far as to say one of the affected parties was a large telecommunications company. Oh. And the other was a multinational technology company. So, so we don't know what those any. are, but they sound like they could be big names. And it sounds like a target. Th yes. This is not this is not like a little consulting company that just hires out people to do stuff. These are big companies, so mm -hmm. that makes me think it's targeted. Right, yeah, exactly. So if you're going to go to less work, you're going to start intercepting things, you're going to come up with, you know, install yep. malware in this way. Yeah, you, you're really trying to get something out of this. Perhaps install information from clients. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, oh, corporate sorry, espionage. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, look, you're on the, you know, it's your work phone, or you're on the corporate network, and hey, now I've you, got you that too. You mentioned a magic word. Oh, did I? Do you remember which one it was? No, I don't. Oh, you fooled me. Starts with an E. 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 Espionage. Espionage. Hey, we're gonna that's come the word of the that day. After, yeah, during, the next, during the next article, we're going to talk about espionage. That's a little teaser yeah, for everyone. Right. Stay tuned for this, for this episode of TechSnap, everyone. So, back to the topic. Yes. Surprisingly, this isn't the first time Android phones have been shipped pre-installed with apps that can surreptitiously siphon sensitive user data to known parties. 
in November. Researchers found a secret backdoor installed on hundreds of thousands of Android devices manufactured by BLU. A few days later, a separate research team uncovered a different backdoor on more than 3 million Android devices from BLU and other manufacturers. In these cases, however, the backdoors were previously unknown and in the latter case were intended to deliver legitimate over-the-air updates. Hold on. Malware, legitimate. Something doesn't add up here. Over-the-air, that's not right. I can't believe that malware is set there to... Yeah, what, what world is this that well, we're living in? To be clear, what, to, to be honest, what they were saying is shipped pre-installed with apps that can surreptitiously siphon sensitive data. So they're not saying that's malware. Yeah, okay. But I'm sorry, it is. It, it is. is, yeah, right. That's by any reasonable definition of that word, unless we're, yeah, trying to be... So in comparison, 38 phones is minuscule compared to what happened in November, which was... Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of, yeah, and millions. Crazy. Wow. I, I think that does really highlight what we were talking about last week, just that Android is not the best platform if you're really concerned or you know, or if you are a person who thinks that they may be targeted or have good reason to be targeted. Um, one of the things we do at work, when someone starts new and they get their new laptop, we say, wipe it. Mm. Install it fresh from scratch. Interesting. Do it yourself. And that's up so to the end user to do? Yep. Oh, wow. Interesting. We leave it to the end user. That's very different up. than the, some of the enterprise type things. You know, you're handed the, the company image and you can only make such and such changes. Nope. They, they download it from, they, they, find, they find the site themselves and download it themselves. Oh, yeah. Interesting. That does seem like a, a, at least for educated users, a pretty good policy, which given where you work, I'm sure they are. Interesting. Yep. <sighs> well, yep. now I'm a little more scared of the phone in my pocket. Do you have anything else you want to add for this story? I cannot imagine not being able to remove an app. Oh, I know. Or have it. I, I want to be able to wipe my phone and reinstall it from scratch. I want to get the the. I want to get the OS from a known good source. Right, from the people, and ideally, that make the, the OS that haven't polluted it with a bunch of other things, apps, malware, ads, whatever. And not necessarily been buggered with along the way. Just <laughs> Yeah, exactly. New phone. Right, yeah. And I'll uh, reinstall it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Ah, okay, well, I think that brings us naturally to our first sponsor this week. If you're concerned about phone security, you're concerned about where you're getting your phones, or you're just someone who's really kind of tuned into this marketplace, Ting is the company for you. So head on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you'll find a company trying to make mobile that makes sense. There's no BS. They're an NVNO. Yeah, say it again. I might need to. MVNO. That means they can focus on the customer side of the mobile relationship. They don't have to worry about expanding their backbone networks, hiring people out to go repair towers. They can focus on you. They can focus on making plans that make sense and making it easy for you. That's one of the things that stands out to me about Ting. It's the customer service. It's the ease. They have a great app. Their website is easy to use. And if you ever need to, I don't think you will. But if you do, they have awesome customer support with real humans. You'll get to talk to someone who 
you know, they're, they're passionate about what they do. The company cares. A lot of people who work for Ting also use Ting. So, you know, they're dog fooding, if you will. <laughs> they get it. They want the service to be awesome as well. So if you go on over to techsnap.ting.com, not only does that tell Ting that you appreciate them sponsoring this fine program, it also will give you, if you sign up, a $25 service credit. Yeah, that's right. Let me tell you one more thing. Ting plans, they start at $6 a month. $6 a month. That's all. That's it. Then you just pay for what you use. Minutes, megabytes, messages. For me, it's just megabytes, honestly. You pay for what you use. You all just fall in a little bucket. Whatever you pay for at the end of the month, done. You don't have to worry about like, well, how much tethering data did they want? It's all just data. You know, they have all the usuals you want. There's no extra fees. There's no contracts. There's no early termination fees. Use it for a month. Use it for a couple of days. Ting doesn't care. That's the simplicity of Ting. You can use it however you want. It doesn't matter to them. They embrace that and encourage you. Whether you want it to just be a little phone you keep in your car or you want it to be, uh, you know, a backdoor network into your house. That's something that I like to do. Go check them out today. One thing you can do as well is if you're, you know, you need a new phone, but you're worried about the security like we were just talking about, head on over to their shop. They've got a lot of awesome phones there. They're unlocked. So if you want to go wipe them and install firmware yourself, you can do that. You can take them to a different carrier if you want. Just one more reason that Ting is awesome. So go let them know you appreciate them. I know I sure do. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. Ah, thank you very much, Ting. That brings us to something we we talked about last week. We hinted at it. It was just a tease. There's really a lot of teases on the show this week. So it's time to talk about Vault 7. Yep, it is. It is. You don't seem excited we, we, over there. Well, I'm not as excited as yeah. I was. Oh, it's my feeling as well, unfortunately. I, I, was, I, I was reading it and said, oh, okay. One thing I've heard... One, there is a link between this story and the previous story. The previous story is about compromised Android phones. And that story came out on March 10th. And this story that we're about to talk about came out a few days earlier. And they talk about compromised cell phones and WikiLeaks. So I'm wondering, did Checkpoint go back and check these phones? Right. Or is it just coincidence? That's a really good question, yeah. So, Hard to say. It's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. There's a lot going on here. So let me jump down to this this part of the story. So if you can pull up the first part of the story and just that press release there. Um, there we go. I want to scroll down to the little bit further where it says the CIA lost control. Nope. It's the third paragraph. Aha. So there we are. Recently, the CIA, CIA lost control. And when I read that, lost control, what do they mean, lost control? You mean it's out in the wild? Of the majority of its hacking arsenal, including malware, viruses, trojans, weaponized zero-day exploits, malware, remote control systems, and associated documentation. So the archive appears to have been circulated among former government hackers and contractors in an unauthorized manner, one of whom has provided WikiLeaks with portions of the archive. So this tells me that the CIA were keeping it under close control and they had hackers working on it. And now former U.S. government hackers and contractors. So basically you're letting people outside the CIA have access to your very important stuff. Yes, exactly. And then you become surprised that hackers and contractors have stolen your very important stuff. Do you know why you hired these people in the first place? 
Yeah, it's pretty if funny. If you want to keep something secret, don't give it to people. Yeah, I think that's something we've seen a lot about just the expanding of the security state, surveillance state, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, that mm-hmm. you know, suddenly there's hundreds of thousands of people that have access to these, at least some of them classified files. Yep. Yeah, that's a hard environment to keep anything secure. So now, where's the next bit? Hey. <clears throat> so, it's a total of 8,761 documents have been published as part of Year Zero in the first of a series of leaks the whistleblower organization has dubbed Vault 7. Now, th- this is actually um, from part of Krebs on Security's uh, bit that, that they were mentioning about. So, I'm just reading from what they said. Uh, WikiLeaks said that Year Zero revealed details of the CIA's global covert hacking program, including weaponized exploits against company products, including Apple's iPhone, Google's Android, and Microsoft Windows, and even Samsung TVs. I have a Samsung TV. Yeah, me too. We'll get to that later. We'll get to my TV later. Oh. By the way, remember, uh, was it last week or the week before that we talked about this huge uh, um, spammers infiltration? They got all the details, yeah. three three billion emails or three. Last week? I was on sure. that list. Oh, were the you? Very ne- the very next day, I got an email <sighs> from, uh, is it Troy Hunt? Yes. Who, who runs, he, he runs the Have I Been Pwned? I think so. I think so. I think so. But anyway. He he fa- he! I got an email from from that from that's, Have I Been Pwned the very next day. That's crazy. Yeah, I like I liked it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's nice feedback for the show here. More among the more notable disclosures, which if confirmed, would rock the technology world. The CIA had managed to bypass encryption on popular phone and messaging services such as Signal, WhatsApp, and Telegram. This is patently false. Okay, so we'll. Get to why I say it's false in a second. According to the statement from WikiLeaks, government hackers can penetrate Android phones and collect audio and message traffic before encryption is applied. What they mean there is if they get physical access to your phone, they can install stuff on it that listens to everything. Everything you type in, everything you say. Well, if you can get physical access to a device, you can pretty much do that to any device, not, not just phones. So... Right. I hear you can do it. I can. I understand you can do it to household appliances such as microwaves as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, when you have that level of control, right? What's What's going to stop you? Yeah, it's hardly to say like this app was designed to operate. You know, it will be secure. Well, none of that. When you When you have the whole OS pwned already, that just goes right out the window. Yep. Now, I want to scroll down here and find this very interesting bit that I. There it is. So, from what I've read. This compromise involves first compromising the phone in question and as such is not an attack on the apps themselves. So if you're using Signal or Telegram, those apps have not been compromised. It's your phone that's been compromised. And that's a very vital distinction. That is the difference between mass surveillance and targeted espionage. And we'll get back to this espionage thing a little bit later. Now, the next thing I did was go and start reading Krebs on security. And that's, I think that's a second, natural thing to do. That, that's the second link. So, 
here's a bit about the Samsung TV. The Weeping Angel, it's about... There we go. Six or eight paragraphs down. The Weeping Angel Projects page from 2014 is a prime example. It discusses ways to turn certain 2013 model Samsung smart TVs into remote listening devices. I'm fortunate. Mine is a 2015 model. Oh, wait. Have I just given them an in? Ooh. But even more interesting... According to the documentation, Weeping Angel worked as long as a target hadn't upgraded the firmware on the Samsung TVs. Patch your shit. Oh, yeah, you're okay. totally right. If you had patched it, they wouldn't have gotten in. It also said the firmware upgrade eliminated the current installation method, which apparently required the insertion of a booby-trapped USB device into the TV. Ooh. Lock your doors. Yeah, right. Don't let them into your house. Don't invite strangers, or at least make sure they don't have very strange USBs with them. Yes. That's my policy. Take off your coat. Please place your USB devices here in the bowl. USB devices yeah. over there, please. Exactly. Perhaps a future cache of documents from the CIA division will change things on this front, but an admittedly cursory examination of these documents indicates that the CIA's methods for weakening the privacy of these tools all seem to require attackers to first succeed in deeply subverting the security of the mobile device, either through a remote access vulnerability in the underlying operating system or via physical access to the target's phone. So... It's pretty hard to do this. It's not a simple thing to do. You got to get pretty specific about what you're doing. And we'll get to this. I'll talk a little bit more about why we really don't need to be highly concerned about this as a group. If you're a targeted individual, yeah, right. all bets are off. But as far as mass surveillance goes, this is not feasible. Right, it's a very different story than, for example, when mm -hmm. we were talking about the Snowden documents. So, uh, if you scroll down a bit, there'll be a tweet from Open Whisper Systems, who are the folks that uh, make Signal. So, the, bit that they, the point they're making is uh, having end-to-end -end encryption everywhere is moving security agencies from being able to do mass surveillance to having to do targeted attacks. And that's good. End-to-end -end encrypt everything, and you can no longer just surveil everyone. You've got to decide who you're going to go after and just go after them. So, as uh, back to a quote. As limited as... Pardon me. As limited as some of these exploits appear to be, the methodical approach of the countless CIA researchers who apparently collaborated to unearth these flaws is impressive and speaks to a key problem with most commercial hardware and software today. So basically, if you get a lot of people and get them very dedicated and get them working on stuff, they can accomplish a great deal. Especially when we have devices that are, you know, they're so complex, right? So there's a lot of room for people to play around with and find, find little ways in. And security still isn't... The highest yes, right. it can be. Features are first, marketability, are. and then somewhere, get out, get if first, you're lucky, secure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. So, the vast majority of vendors would rather spend the time and money marketing their products than embark on the costly, frustrating, time-consuming, 
and continual process of stress testing their own products and working with a range of researchers to find these types of vulnerabilities before the CIA or other nation state level hackers can. So people will pay for privacy. And if you do it well, you'll make money. But nobody's doing it. Well, I'm sorry, some are doing it, not enough are doing it. Exactly. So now the, the, this bit from an NBC News report in 2016 was interesting. The CIA's Center for Cyber Intelligence, which is the alleged source of the documents in this story, has a staff of hundreds and a budget in the hundreds of millions. No wonder they can do this. Yeah, stuff. right. That pays for a lot of engineers. I've seen some movies about people doing this at the CIA, and it's absolutely amazing what they're theoretically doing in the movies. But I really enjoyed those movies. And I have a lot of admiration for the people that do this. I know one guy that worked in the CIA. Oh, interesting. I should have, I, I, should have, I think. Maybe he can send some feedback to the show. Tell us what we've got wrong. Yeah. Now, the CIA does covert, right? They do covert operations. I know that CSIS doesn't. CSIS is a Canadian security... It's sort of the... Almost equivalent, but not quite? Yeah, well, no, they're much Sorry, better. Sorry, do they just no, do, like, information gathering then? Uh, they do investigation. Oh, okay. They do it overtly. They don't do anything um, undercover. Okay, interesting. Hmm. So, now, I would like to go to the espionage versus surveillance bit here. Now, the reason I want to go to this is this is an old, older article by Bruce Schneier. Schneier. I really like him. I oh, like yeah. the stuff he puts out. I think most technologists do like the stuff they put out. And it talks about the difference between espionage versus surveillance. And that's what this WikiLeaks thing is basing itself upon. Um, it's trying to make it sound like it's mass surveillance, but it's not. It's targeted espionage. To get these things onto someone's Samsung um, TV, you've got to have physical access to that TV. That, that's not within the realm of most people being able to do. You've got to get into the house and out without letting anyone know. There's only a relatively small group of people that can do that. Right. And I could see it, um, you know, it's a little easier to do maybe in an office or, um, you know, boardroom type setting, um, as some of our IRC members have pointed out. But then it just becomes, right, it, it, then it's just a fallback on what your physical, physical security things are. So if you have a breakdown there, it's already pretty easy to do things like, oh, yeah, you know, hope here's the key logger in your USB port or other things. So I think you're right. That's why visitors are never left alone. Yeah, right. Visitors never left alone. You maybe you take a copy or scan their ID or take a picture yep. of them. Yeah, yep. standard things. Where are we over here? There we go. Um, I I remember reading a tweet earlier this week about I'm surprised at how people aren't really upset about this or mm -hmm. all that really interested, and it's because it's I think. It's important to know. Right. But I do believe that WikiLeaks are overextending. Um, that's a bad term of phrase. Um, it's in WikiLeaks' interest to hype it up. Right. Yeah, they but get as much coverage seen, as possible. Yeah. But from what I've seen from other people is it's, it's 
not as as big a deal as WikiLeaks is making it out to be. Right. I think it's you, kind of, um, you know, it's not necessarily unexpected, um, right? We, we kind of expect the CIA to be doing these things, especially in the world today, right? So, like, before it was undercover agents and going to, to you know, socializing with people in high society, getting resources, and now we need these tools as well. So you're right, it is very important that we know what's going on, and that way we can debate, have a public debate about, do we want this? Is this right? Maybe also good for people who don't live in the United States to kind of know, like, these are the things that may be get targeted against you. But what we're seeing is that it's not, you know, it isn't the, yeah, you're right, it isn't the NSA-style dragnet, it isn't, it's, it's very much like, yes, this is our target, we know it, we can do that. And, but it is an interesting glimpse but I think you're right that the news kind of, and I think people are used to or expected something like the Snowden documents. And so there's also kind of that letdown of like, well, this isn't really that scary to me. Of course they're going to be targeting people. If this was 10 years ago and you read about this and you saw this in a movie right. plot, what would you think? Yeah, I think it made all, it, all before the Snowden leaks, all yeah. before the original Snowden leaks, would you have believed this movie? Yeah, I mean, I think I would have questioned some of the technology. I mean, like, what? What's a smartphone? But uh, it it doesn't seem outrageous. It does. It seems like they're they're pretty standard. Some of them are very interesting, but they're kind of standard ways to attack devices. Would you have believed uh, enemies in Star Trek in planting viruses in tricorders? Yeah. Oh, sure. Seems pretty reasonable to me. It's not much different. It's not much different. Except our, my phone is nowhere near as helpful as a tricorder. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a tricorder having a virus, though. <laughs> I mean, those uh, I, 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 um, those Federation engineers know what they're up to. Or so we hope. Yes, they do. So, finishing this off, mm -hmm. patch your shit, <laughs> secure physical access, and it's not as bad as WikiLeaks is making it out to be. There Don't panic. Don't panic. I like that. And really, yeah, it's a, it's amazing how much the uh, patch your shit really just comes back every week. But but you watch. Now, because I said it's not as bad, I'm going to get targeted. Yes, there's still, yes, exactly. And there's still a lot of documents, so there may be some further developments. If so, yes. please come back to our program here. We yep. will surely touch on them. If the code comes out, that'll tell yes, a lot. Yes, exactly. That will tell a lot. Anything else people should be aware of on this one or anything else you'd like to send them? No, if you see new stuff come out, read about it, tell us. Yes, please do. Please do. Okay, well then, I think that brings us to our next sponsor this week. Oh, yes, it does. And that sponsor is IX Systems. Oh, there we go. Ah, IX Systems. What can I say about them besides they are the hardware partner you need? If you've been watching our program and you're concerned about security, you're thinking, ah, you know, I, can I really be sure what's running on my servers in an, in an environment filled with so many exploits and bad practices, that's where IX Systems is going to make a great partner for you. They know that your server needs to be custom because your needs are custom, and they want to work with you. They have awesome servers. They're powered by amazing Intel processors, and they have an incredible team of sales engineers just waiting by the phone for you to give them a call. They are excited to hear about your problems, the problems of your business, of your employer, and they want to come up with a solution that A, will meet your budget, and B, will meet your goal so that, you know, six months from now, you're not like, ah, well, we just bought that new line of servers. Turns out they don't meet our capacity needs. Oh, turns out we needed to expand them in this way. Maybe we wanted to put a GPU in there. 
and it doesn't work with that motherboard type because of this, you know, this minuscule thing. That's exactly what iX knows. They have awesome partnerships with their hardware hardware providers, right? So they work with these guys all the time. They have all kinds of knowledge about small systems, big systems, giant systems. If you go to their website, you can see some of the awesome people they work with. Adobe, VMware, Noah, Sega, Splunk, Tumblr. Like These are a lot of people that have big data. They have data that's important. They have data that we all rely on as people who use their cloud services. They have the sense to work with iX Systems. So going over to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap, that lets iX know that you appreciate them sponsoring the program. That'll also give you an awesome buying guide for open source. And that's one of the other nice things about iX Systems is that they really value the community members and the community around them, right? They're very much involved with the Open ZFS project. Uh, they develop the FreeNest software that's so popular, as you can see down here, the FreeNest Mini, which if you haven't tried a FreeNest, you should definitely try it today. They understand that that open source ZFS in particular, right, this is enter an enterprise file system. So rather than trying to sell you on some obscure hardware rack that will only work with these things and, oh, you got to have all of our utilities and it'll only work in this configuration, they set your data up in standard ways following best practices so that, you know, oh, you need to migrate later. You suddenly need to get go. It's time to get yourself a true rack and migrate over there. You need to have a diverse set. Maybe you have some cool tools that can work with CFS and you should. IX is perfect for that. So go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out some of their services. Maybe go pick up a free NAS. You'll be glad you did. I know it's not Christmas, but uh, just buy yourself a present anyway. Get a new server from IX Systems today. Ah, uh, IX. They're great. Yeah, they are. Um, I have two servers from them. One is yet to be set up. I need more time. Oh, there you go. I'm excited. I'm sure we'll hear more of that here on the show. And that brings us to this week's feedback, the section where we cover letters, emails, texts, telegrams, Twitters, tweets, really anything that you send to us. We will cover it here. So please keep using all the methods you have to give us feedback, send us stuff, and then we get to do this awesome segment. Looks like we've got a pretty awesome mailbag today. I'm excited for this. Uh, let's see, what do we have first? I'll just look over here to the physical mailbag that I definitely have. Pull out a story. And this reminds me of the Uncle Bobby show. Yeah, right. Either the Uncle Bobby show or the Friendly Giant. I don't remember which. <laughs> uh, I like that. I aim to please. So, first up from, let's see, Murray Perry Platypus. We've got a question about VLANing versus subnetting. Hey there, I just watched two-thirds of episode 309. Well, I hope by now you finish the other third. Uh, thanks for watching. And my frontal lobe twitched a bit regarding the difference between VLAN tagging and subnetting. Although I'm still somewhat of a novice, as in lack of industry standard certification, uh, I think you might have missed the point of Tyler Lemmer's question. Tyler said, I want to be able to have VLANs. Does this mean I need to have subnets? Well, layer three subnets might be considered considerable as virtual local area networks, but their segmentation is defined by the subnet mask. I think the answer is no. One doesn't have to do subnetting in order to do VLANing. Correct me if I'm wrong. VLANs, at least the IEEE 802.1Q tagged flavor, are defined on OSI layer 2, which is Ethernet below IP. VLAN tags have their own header field in Ethernet frames. And then he points us to Wikipedia, a handy reference. Subnetting, in contrast, is a subset of IP and operates on layer 3, IP addresses and their subnet masks. 
There are several types of VLANing, though. Port-based ones, for instance, which can be defined in smart switches, e.g. switch port 3 to 5 is a separate virtual LAN, and traffic on those ports will not be shared with other ports no matter what. Port-based smart switchy type VLANs might differ from 802.1Q. A subset of random other ports on that switch might do tagged VLAN simultaneously. Depends on the capabilities of the switch. There should be even more types of VLANs according to Wikipedia. Fluffy greetings from Hamburg in UTC plus one. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much for writing us. Uh, I think that's some good feedback. Uh, it can be a little hard sometimes to get yep. the right intent for what someone's talking about. Um, I think for when we were talking with Tyler, I think he had a very practical mindset. And for what he needed to do, he, he probably did really need to have a subnet made. Um, but I think this yeah. is a really good dive into you know what are the actual things we're talking about here, what's strictly required in terms of, you know, of the actual protocol. And my answer was based on what I do here. I I actually VLAN things off based on on subnets. Ah, okay. I know I don't have to. Right. But basically, I want to have this subnet for this purpose, this subnet for that purpose, and then I isolate them through VLANs. Mm -hmm. And most of them are like uh, Murray says, they're done on the port. Okay. Yeah. On the switch, right. and most of them are not tagged. Some of them are tagged for the, um, for the gateway fi firewall. Mm -hmm. Those ones are tagged, but for most of them, it's not tagged. They don't even know they're on a on a VLAN. They, yeah, right, they're exactly. just in a sub subnet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a good, you know, um, a, a common setup that I've seen a lot as well. And but uh, you know, thank you very much, Murray. It's it's good to understand the the details here. There's a lot going on. Um, yep. And then you're especially right that a lot of this stuff really depends on what kind of switch you are actually have and what options are available to you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next up in the mailbag, we have something from Alex Webster. Thank you for writing us, Alex. He's just getting into FreeBSD. Hey, Wes and Dan. I am just starting to dive into FreeBSD after being in the Linux world for years. What caught my eye were jails. I think that caught, catches a lot of people's eyes. Uh, especially in our Docker world of today. It made me think of virtualization and that you have another root file system contained by itself, yet running on the main host OS. Do I have that right? If so, can you give us your take on why someone would use FreeBSD to host virtual, machi virtual machines, say, in Beehive? Uh, yes, you are <laughs> basically right. Um, a jail is basically a very fancy CH root mm -hmm. and some other stuff wrapped around it. But that's that's about what it is. Um, and why would you use Beehive when you have jails? Um, I asked this on Twitter. <laughs> nice. And I got a bunch of answers. One of which was debugging kernel code. Sure. Yep. That makes sense. So you put your new kernel in Beehive, you boot that, and you debug it through there. Right. You don't have to keep the rebooting thing, your machine. Yep. Uh, the other thing is you can run Windows, NetBSD, OpenBSD, and Linux and stuff like that in yeah. Beehive. Right. So you can run it in there. Um, uh, Mark Felder, I've known him to run Linux in a jail on ZFS when he was developing a particular version of subversion for us. Mm. And he would snapshot the jail. Yep. And when he compiled stuff and it overwrote the jail, like the base Linux kernel, he would just roll back the snapshot. Nice. It would yep. undo everything, and he would try a different way. So can you run Beehive in a jail? 
theory that that should work right if you had the right permit if it had enough permissions i i don't know and i don't know why you would well i I was just thinking of um like a lumos right where they'll have kvm running inside a zone Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm not sure why you would but it is an interesting layer i don't know yeah i don't know with the right permissions i don't see uh no i don't think so because it's totally separate Mm mm-hmm Maybe someone can answer no, us. No. Right, more you might be able to run it in a jail, but it would be a totally separate instance. Right. I don't know. Uh, another reason, um, if vImage is not stable for your use, your Beehive instance will have a separate network stack. So oh, you can yeah. use that, that as well. So it's just completely separate. So those are some really good reasons for for using beehive and i'm tempted to use it I've, i haven't used it yet yeah i've only played with it a tiny bit uh, but jails are great so uh, i think alex has a lot to look forward to um it's neat that freebsd now does have i mean beehive has gotten a lot of traction very quickly it seems like um from being introduced not that long ago really um yes i don't know what kind of production use but surely for a lot of developer stuff personal use i've seen a ton of that's kind of exploded uh, awesome. Well, Alex, thank you for writing us. Uh, good luck on your journey into FreeBSD. I'm sure you were going to have a lot of fun. Okay, next up in the mailbag. Let's see here. We've got something from Ryan. Ryan writes to us about Bacula Disk Auto Changer. Hi, I've used Bacula for a few years. Hey, good for you, Ryan. And I've had a pretty successful run with it. Actually, I set up an instance at my last job, and four years later... It's still sending me successful backup emails, and I know full well that nobody has touched that system since. Hey, good job. That's great. Anyway, I mean, not the not touching it maybe, but that's awesome. Anyway, I have a pool set up on my file server, tape on disk, and it runs well. On about a monthly basis, I'm manually arsing files to an eSATA drive and take it off site. What I'd like to do is make this process a bit more automated. Is there a way, with Bacula, to treat disks like tapes, allowing me to have a stack of hot-swappable disks that I could rotate and take off-site. Can I mount slash unmount the physical disk from within the storage daemon, allowing me to just show up, pull the disk, insert a new one, and not have to touch the console? Like an auto-changer for disks. Thanks for the input. So I think this one is definitely for our resident Bacula expert, Mr. Dan. I asked a guy I know on IRC about this because he does a lot more with VChanger than I do. I, I have virtual drives on my system, but I don't actually use VChanger. And I think you might be able to do with this with VChanger, but you would still have to do some sort of manual intervention at some time, like when you actually change, change the uh, drives over. But I do think that it would pause for you and ask, ask you to put in the next one. But I haven't tried it. I don't know for sure. Try it, find out, let us know, because this sounds very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see why he would want something like that, right? Then you can just kind of, you can keep rotating disks. You always have some backups mm-hmm. off-site, you yep. know, that you can, you can even go test restore them somewhere else, make sure everything's working. Interesting. I'm, yep. I'm curious to hear the update of that as well. That's also a very important part of the feedback here is please do give us updates. Those are almost more valuable than the new feedback sometimes just to, to hear how things worked out. Yep. Yes. Let us know. Okay, to the final mailbag item. We have something from Sev Martinez. Uh, he's wondering about blocking IP from attempting connections to Postfix the email server. Okay, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense here. Let's dig in. 
So he's looking to block IP traffic. Let's see. I've I've set up a postfix email server, and when checking the var log mail log, I see a lot of attempts to access the server. Here's this. He provides us a handy sample here, so we can see various IP addresses trying to connect, disconnect. Um, how could this type of traffic be mitigated? I've been using firewall command to block IP addresses that flood the log, but it gets to be tedious. Any help would be appreciated. So the first thing that comes to my mind would be something like fail to ban. Um, yep. I, I have not actually used it for postfix, but I imagine that other people have looked into similar things. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually sure what he's what he's concerned about here. There's, I don't actually see anything here suspicious. Right. I mean, this is just normal connections. Mm -hmm. They're not trying anything. And it's hard to know <laughs> as well, like how how locked down is it reasonable to be, right? Is this a public yes. bail server? Is this something for internal yeah. or your own use? That would change the things. I remember how paranoid or how highly concerned I was with stuff in the beginning, and I'm much less concerned with that now. If it's up to date and it's patched and um, it's not acting as a mail relay, there's very little that'll happen here. Um, you may get some spam, but that's a, that's a different issue. But if you are concerned about it, look at something like fail to ban, which is an automated uh, method for, for blocking IP addresses or ranges of IP addresses if you want. Yeah, and I just did a, just a quick little Google. Um, a lot of stuff comes up. Maybe you can throw one of these in the show notes. Here's, here's an example of uh, how to configure fail to ban to block brute, brute force IP attempts by scanning postfix logs. So there's a lot out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think mm -hmm. the, the hardest part, right, is just tune it so that you don't lock yourself out or for IPs that you do want to use. Uh, it's a little more important than SSH when yeah. you do it that way, but still. Yeah, um, you, you can whitelist IPs. Oh, yeah, there you go. Fail to ban. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Okay, well, that wraps up uh, this week's feedback. If you're interested in hosting your own, uh, you know, hosting your own servers, you've been playing with this kind of stuff, or you just need a server to test with really quick, let, let me let me tell you, I've got someone for you. That's our last sponsor. That's DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean. <sighs> DigitalOcean is the cloud provider that just makes things so easy. They're all about setting things up so that in 55 seconds you can have a brand new server. So. Hey, you just set up fail to ban. You need some you need some IPs to test. You want to go hammer your server, see if you get banned just like you expect you should. Go to DigitalOcean. In under a minute, you will have spun up a new server. You get your own public IPv4 address. They've got 40 gigabit E straight to the hypervisors. Yeah, that's right. And they're using real hypervisors. None of that OpenVZ or some kind of container. No, you get a real hypervisor. You can run whatever kernel you want in there. It's legit. That's why we recommend DigitalOcean. So they're the simple cloud hosting provider. They want to make things intuitive, easy. To that end, they have an awesome website. There's a ton of apps, and all of it is made possible by their awesome API. It's not this crazy thing that sends you horrible messes of JSON, and you need like six different security tokens to get into as with some of their competitors. No, it's really simple, secure, easy. And it shows by how much the community has adopted it and all the awesome projects. There's tons of things. So if you, you, know, you spin up some servers, then you want an app on your phone to go shut them down, spin new things up totally possible on DigitalOcean. So if you go over DigitalOcean, make sure you use our promo code, which is SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit. And guess what? DigitalOcean's prices, they start at $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. So you could have your own cloud rig for free, two months. Just make sure you remember SNAPOcean. 
They've got a ton of nice enterprise features as well, like, look at that, introducing load balancers. Distribute traffic across your infrastructure for $20 a month. So if you're getting to the point, right, and that's one of the things that DigitalOcean is great for. All right, I need one little $5 server. Let me prototype my app. Hey, it's working. Let's launch a beta. You can go from nothing to running real real infrastructure, you know, a full website with load balancing, monitoring, backups, distributed systems, everything, and, you know, all over the world right there on DO. You don't have to change providers, none of it. They've got data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. So pretty much wherever you need to go, DigitalOcean is ready to go there too. If you need more incentive, you should go follow some of their social media accounts. They have beautiful racks, beautiful data centers, and they're obviously very proud of them. They're always showing neat pictures of the things that they're working on. So don't waste any time. Go get yourself a new cloud server at DigitalOcean using promo code SNAPOcean. And that brings us to this week's roundup. Ah, I love the roundup. There's so many good things. It's just like a, a grab bag full of both terrible and wonderful surprises. I really never know what's going to be in there. Uh, and then I get to find out today. So what do you have for us in your magical bag of mysteries this week? Well, this reminds me of the, uh, th- this new, this item reminds me of something from almost decades ago. <laughs> But this is a look at the year 2036 and 2038 problems and time-proofness in various systems. And I remember seeing a talk, I believe it may have been at BSD CAN, um, by one of the OpenBSD developers talking about going to 64K clocks. Sorry, 64-bit clocks. And this talk was at least two, maybe four or five years ago that they were talking about this. Wow. And the approach that they were taking is that the operating systems will get changed and updated in time. But the systems that are being rolled out now in embedded systems, they're, they're not going to get updated. And these systems often hang around for decades. Yeah, way too long. And they all have this trouble. Mm-hmm. And so there's stuff out there now that's in use that will have this problem. Um, the article starts off with, I remember the Y2K problem quite vividly. <laughs> so do I. I was paid to work on systems to make sure that they were Y2K compliant. Oh, really? Wow. I, I remember I was living in New Zealand at the time. Okay. And I remember staying up all night. Uh, I was on the internet by then. Uh, and I stayed up from midnight New Zealand time, I don't know how late, probably all night long, because it was the holidays. Yeah, right, totally. And it's the peak of summer. Right, oh, good point, yeah. So everyone takes their their um, big vacations around late December, early January, okay. and so I just stayed on IRC all night long, listening to all this stuff, Um you know, there were some small reports came around because New Zealand wasn't actually the first to hit hit the year 2000. It was something just slightly just east. Just slightly of us. east, right? Yeah. Um, but then we we hit it. Uh, a whole bunch of other places hit it. Then Australia hit hit it, and we heard it going across Australia and Asia. That's awesome. Um, I think I think Japan hit before hmm. uh, Australia did. Someone's going to correct me. You watch. I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah, right. Totally. 
Um, I like this image, though, of, you know, this, like, invisible line just crossing the globe as it goes. Well, if you remember, some planes were set to not be on in the air. Some planes were set to be on the ground. I forgot about that. um, There are all kinds of things. People were were saying, turn off your computer systems Mm -hmm. when you go home. Um, You don't want to to be surprised, you know, when they turn up and it's the the new millennium. Now, granted, I think I was still on a windows xt operating Mm -hmm. system at home at the time uh i had freebsd i've been using freebsd for maybe a year and a half okay yeah but it was still relatively new it was just a gateway it was just my firewall my gateway my mailing list Mm -hmm. my but no but anyway this is a similar but different problem because it's the epoch problem i hope i got that right and basically, most Unix systems use the number of six seconds passed since December, sorry, January 1st, 1970, as a 32-bit value. But the rollover will happen in 2038, when the jump, when the counter then goes back to December 13th, 1901, if the system can handle negative values correctly, which is not a given. And there's all kinds of problems here, you know, FAT, NTFS, uh, network time protocol uses a 32-bit value for the number of seconds passed since January, CD-ROMs, early Macintosh computers, the IBM S370. Hey. So maybe then it'll finally, those ones will disappear at that point in in history. Mm -hmm. Probably not. GPS. Yeah, there's a lot on this list. Some GPS. some of the things I would not have suspected at all. But you're right, like a lot of these things, especially the things that are embedded or other systems that have been standardized for years now, this was before we were thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he goes through a few different things and how they're going to be solved and then talks about how to avoid the problem. But the, the, this is a bigger deal than is being given credit. And I would like to hear more about more from vendors about, you know, I'm buying this thing now and this stuff is still 20 years away. But you're making stuff now that's going to be out there for another 10 or 15 years. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's a it's a serious support issue and it's obviously going to take, you know, some real man hours of engineer's time to, to fix all of these different things or to actually have the design, you know, forethought in place so that we can start ha- making systems and using systems that are already compliant. Now, it's been pointed out in the channel that if it was the year 2000, I wouldn't have had XP yet. Maybe I had Windows NT. Oh, yeah, that's possible. I'm, I'm not sure which, but I know I was running a Windows system. I know I didn't didn't use Windows ME, and I don't think it was Windows 2000. That's good. Windows ME was terrible. No. Terrible. I, I think it might have been 98, Windows 98, someone says. So maybe it was. Maybe it was. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. The dark times. It's best to forget. Just drink to forget. We're, yes. We'll, it's fine. Yes. Ah, okay. So the, the roundup must go on. Do you have anything else uh, for this one? I thought it was an interesting, no. interesting article, something to think about. Um, we just have to wait and see at this point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this next article is just super creepy. Tell us about it. 
first of all, I have to apologize because as a Canadian, this is actually a Canadian company that's doing this. I did this. not realize that. And, and I'm sorry, and I'm sure they're, they're sorry too. But basically, the head, headline reads, Vibrator Maker to pay millions over claims that secretly tracked use. Now, this is actually a instance of remotely controlled vibrators. And you can read the story, and it's very interesting. And someone had actually complained that you could, because it was access, accessible through an app in your phone, somebody could break in and gather the information. But right. what's worse here is that the manufacturer was collecting information as to when and how the sex toy was being used. That's crazy. That is like That's a little bit right? personal. Yeah, I think that might be the definition of personal information right there. Yep. Yep. I remember there was yep. kind of a big uh, a little bit of a scandal when the original Fitbit devices came out. Uh, there's the same sort of thing like you could use the activity to infer things about people's private private behavior. An estimated 300,000 people bought Bluetooth-enabled WeVibes, according to court documents, and about 100,000 of them used the app. Under the terms of the settlement, anyone who bought an app-enabled vibrator can receive up to $199. Anyone who actually connected it to the app can collect up to $10,000. Wow. The actual amount paid out will depend on how many people file claims. The company estimates people who bought the app will get around $40 and people who use the app around 500 So it sounds like the lawyers are getting a lot of money. Yes, it does. And it, from, from the article, it kind of sounds like they really didn't do anything here to anonymize this information or make it, you know, like I can understand... You know, they may want to know what settings people prefer, all the, all the normal kind of marketing stuff where you want anonymized, you know, just statistics about the use. Uh, but boy, when it's like an account that you've signed into and you're sending data yep. about this specific person, yep. that's frightening. Yep. Yep. And this is an example of why privacy is everybody's business. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's those things where you're like, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not scared. Yeah, I don't do anything weird. But like suddenly it's in your private life in your bedroom and yep. yeah. No one wants to talk about that. I'm sorry. Exactly. This is exactly the kind of behavior where it's like, as technologists or people interested in technology, it's a shame because these are the stories that will make people more reticent to adopt, which maybe they should be, right? Because we're not getting it right in terms of in terms of security or in terms of privacy practices. Uh, but it's exactly yep. the thing that like, well, I don't want your cool new toy because it's spying on me and I have no way to trust it. And it's just going to slowly erade the public's trust. Mm-hmm. The channel mentions open source sex toys. Hey, there you go. That's uh, I think that's a great example of it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay, well, on to something that is also depressing. These 24 yes. senators have introduced a bill to let telecoms sell your private internet history. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Mm-hmm. That is something that sounds like you would not approve of, Dan. Mm-hmm. This bill aims to completely dismantle the FCC's ability to enact data security or on or online privacy protections for consumers under the powers of the Congressional Review Act. So basically your ISP would be able to sell say to whoever they want the fact that you've been doing a lot of DNS lookups for a particular website. 
or that there's been a lot of traffic going to this particular website. You know, you might be uploading photos or something like that, or you might be downloading photos, and all this information can just be sold. So I think that everyone who's listening should go and have a look at this list of 24 senators and see if one of these folks is your senator and let them know what you feel about this. Because I find this is a gross intrusion of privacy. And there's no way that the FCC should have this um, ability to impose these restrictions removed. This is, this is crap. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It is crap. I don't see uh, I don't see anyone representing me on that list. But yeah, please do go check audience. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I don't see in any way how it's in the public interest, how it benefits you or I or any mm-hmm. any other citizen. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just bad policy. Yeah. Now, this will affect you even if you use a VPN. Yeah. Because at some point you're coming out of the VPN, and at some point there's a telecom looking after it. So. Yeah, no, you, yeah, this is wrong. It is wrong. I, I completely agree. <sighs> okay, well then let's move on to happier news. We've got to keep this roundup balanced. I don't want to depress everyone at the end of the show. So, the EFF, EFF someone we mentioned last week, an organization we yes. both like, they are applauding Amazon for pushing back on the request for Echo Data. This is a nice follow-up to that. It was, it's been an interesting story kind of the entire time, um, yes. but it's nice to see, I feel like Amazon before, right? we maybe know Apple's position a little bit better, We've had we've gone yes. back and forth on what Google does, yes. uh, so it's nice to see at least something in the positive camp here. Um, I remember when this first came out, and I said, "Oh, that's interesting." But what could they hope to find? They're not looking specifically for the information that was recorded on the Echo and then sent to Amazon. They're looking for background noise. So, what happens with an Amazon Echo? is you say, hey, Alexa, what time is it? The time is 8.10 p.m. Hey, look at that. There you go. So that's also just happened to all the listeners. I'm sorry. I apologize. He doesn't really. I'm not sorry. (laughs) So what the police want to know is that recording that was just taken and sent off, not necessarily what I was saying, but what the other people in the room were saying when I said that. That's what they're after. And again, this is an invasion of privacy. That's a listening device. It's a listening device under my control. You have no permission to get in there. And I'm very pleased that Amazon pushed back and said no. Now, this is about a murder case. Um, People can say it's very serious. It's a murder case. But it's not the seriousness of the crime or the type of crime that is relevant here. It's basically the intrusion into personal data. And that's got to stop. I think you hit that right on the nose. Um, I wish people would see more like there are some costs to living in a free society, right? Like there will be times where individual rights and liberties will get in the way of lawful enforcement. And unfortunately, like, right, sometimes guilty people go free you know, walk free. And that's just the, something we have to accept if we're going to live in a yes. fair and just society. So I yes. think this is the same thing. This is, like the article said, it's the heart of the Fourth Amendment protection. The home is considered the heart of the Fourth exactly. Amendment protection. They have no right to come in and grab the stuff without a court order. Yeah, right? Like if they were looting through your um, 
just walked inside and started looting through your desk drawers, you would, mm-hmm. you would be rightfully mm-hmm. outraged. People don't seem to yep. see it that way. I hope no. I hope no. that our culture can can kind of get forward on that step because that's what's going to take to get these laws changed. This is a notebook. Yeah. Right. Pe- people, for example, you can record a mail. You can record a shopping list in there. It, it's a notebook. Yep. Exactly. It's like your private journal, really. Yep. The law. The law has to catch up. Okay, so next roundup item, we're back to Krebs on security. If your iPhone is stolen, these guys just may try to iFish you. Hey, that's a new one, iFish. I like that. Yep. This is a great article. If I had have found this a little bit sooner, um, it only came out today. That's so right, I didn't guys. have enough time time to read through it. So basically he talks about a friend of his whose uh, iPhone was stolen. Or I believe it may have been a family member. It was a family member's iPhone that was stolen. And he got an email saying, hey, listen, we found your iPhone. Click here and we'll help you. But no, they were basically, if you can get, get the phone unlocked, it is then a resellable item. And that's what this is all behind. And the guy kept looking, and he, and he found someone who sells a service of unlocking the iPhone for you. Basically, they'll fish the people, they'll get it unlocked, and they'll sell you the iPhone. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Well, they'll, they sell you their services of unlocking, of unlocking an iPhone. Unlocking the iPhone, right. Yeah. And they have a list of, of, of buyers, and they have a list of people who um, buy this service. And this is a long, in-depth article and I so enjoyed skimming through it. And at the end is, you know, photographs of the person who seems to be running this business. And it's great. This is a great article. I highly recommend reading it. And maybe we'll highlight this next week if we have time. If, if nothing really huge comes out, this is very interesting. And it seems like a good one to share with uh, your iPhone having family members yep. or coworkers. Yep. Yep. That's exactly yep. the kind of thing where it's, this is the this is the edge case where you're like, oh, you're panicking, you want your phone back, and here's some things that you should not do. Slow down. Slow down, think. Watch an episode of TechSnap, think things yep. over. You'll probably yep. be better off for it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Krebs. Yes, thank you, Krebs. Uh, what would we do without you? Love letter to Krebs. That's, uh, that's every TechSnap episode just about. Okay, so next up in the roundup, what do you have for us? We have a publicly available backup drive with secrets on it, military secrets that was not password protected. I hear those are the best kind of secrets. Those are the best kind. So it seems that someone found a drive just sitting there. These, you know, it, it wasn't a drive sitting somewhere, but basically someone had left the backups on, attached, available for people to download and look at. And while it's not highly classified, it's a big deal. Basically, there's a father that lists security clearance levels of hundreds of other officers, some of whom who possess top secret clearance and have access to sensitive compartmented information and code word level secure uh, clearance, phone numbers and contact information. So basically, 
That's unfortunate. It, it doesn't sound like it was malicious. It was just negligent. Right, exactly. Um, and this doesn't really do very much, at least from what I've read. You know, it doesn't do that kind of thing where the it promotes public discussion of important policy. This really just it seems to be, you know, unfortunate information, people's personal information uh, that really has no place being public like this. Yeah, the, 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 this is bad. Are you allowed? Are we bad. allowed to? I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm in like opposite places, but it's, um, you know, on the one hand, like there are some some disclosures, Snowden documents, etc., that like this is important information that the polis needs, you know, to have to so that we can support yeah. what we're doing. But at the same time, as a, a citizen, I'd also like for my government agencies to do a better job with their own information security, especially for things like this. Do you remember when WikiLeaks released a whole lot of? Um, Diplomatic yes. uh, messages. Right. I thought that was a horrible use of information. Diplomacy is secret for a reason. Right. And there's a lot of damage done with that release. Yeah. I understand. I, I, I understand their motives for releasing it. Yes. And it's a hard uh, issue, right? Like, I mean, you have yeah. to. There's a there's a thin line that you have to walk between you know important disclosure and disclosing too much. Um, yeah. I think one of the harder things with WikiLeaks is to really judge what their own agenda is, right? Because there, there's, it depends on what you're trying to support. Uh, I think they, they obviously come very much on pretty much all information being out there. They do redact things, like especially in this most recent one, we saw that they did a seemingly a very good job redacting the code and other things. Um, mm -hmm. But their values may not align with various government entities, uh, etc. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Ah, well, uh, that's too bad. Let's switch over to something a little happier. I was really pleased yes. to see this. Yes. Here is Michael Dexter writing on Twitter, Congratulations to the FreeBSD Foundation for an Intel partnership and a $250,000 donation. That's awesome. That's a, that's a big donation. That is a big donation. Um, uh, and it reads off, Better collaboration will help enable more drivers, tools, and applications for systems using Intel CPUs, networking products, SSDs, technologies such as Intel Quick Assist, and timely support. Timely support, excuse me, for future Intel 3D XPoint products. This is good. This is really good. This is a quarter of a million of dollars. Yeah, that's huge. That's um, not trivial. Not at all. Um, especially to a um, you know an open open source operating system in their foundation. Um, yep. yep. And I think what's yep. really interesting is that it's just nice to see more commitment here. You know, more more direct work. Obviously, there's yes. a lot of things that are already well supported on FreeBSD, mm -hmm. but having the upstream hardware provider be a first class person in the community it really goes a long way. Um, I was also interested to see that there apparently there Intel was talking about how a lot of people of people buying their products had lobbied them for better FreeBSD support. So that's also... Um, oh, good. Yeah, they had heard from now, from some of their customers. So that's great. Did, did, did you hear about the WhatApp donation? Oh, yeah, totally. A million dollars? A million dollars. I think, I think that was two, two years ago? Yes, I believe so. So... Um, and that was huge at the time, right? So this is not a small chunk of that. No, no. Awesome. There, there are a lot of companies that, that donate, and it's much appreciated. Thank you. Exactly. Let's, let's, uh, I want to see more good things like this in the TechSnap Roundup in the future. Okay, so back to Schneier. Let's do it. The CIA's 
development tradecraft, do's and don'ts. Yes. Basically, what he's doing here is he's giving a list of things to do and don't that everyone should be doing. So these are best practices for malware writers, courtesy of the CIA. And it seems like a good advice, but some of this, <coughs> pardon me, is a, I can actually be useful for people writing real code. Right. Um, oh, I'm sorry, not real code. I mean, non-malware code. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In your um, average everyday developer's life cycle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of the advice was... Uh, Doing end-to-end encryption instead of relying on TLS. Um, basically, do good end-to-end encryption. Don't use TLS. Um, use ITF RFC compliant network pro- protocols. You know, don't create your own protocol. There's enough sitting around here. Exactly. Comply with RFC protocols. Don't don't break stuff. Just just do the right thing and be a good net, net citizen. Oh, do not break disk I.O. operations that will cause the system to become un- unresponsive to the user or alerting to a system administrator. So, yeah, if you're, doing, if you're doing things that you don't want people to know about, don't let people know about it. Yeah, exactly. I liked some of the some of the advice here is, is is good, but you might not think about right. And so there's like I like the one of you know don't wait for the operating system to remove your sensitive thing from memory. Make sure that you have freed that memory already, or as and even better, overwritten it. I like this one. Do not use hard coded file names or file paths when writing disks files to disk. This must be configurable at deployment time by the operator. Totally. Who'd have thought? Yeah. Right. Uh, uh. Everyone knows how easy it is to hard code those things, but it's like, especially for these, right? Just just don't. Make it a config option. Do not use US-centric timestamp formats, such as month, month, day, day, year, 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 year. Heck yes. Ah, there are standards for these things for a reason. Ours is Sir? exactly the worst. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose there's a couple ones that are also bad, but anyway, it just doesn't make any sense and it's terrible. Anything else from this one you'd like to point out? There's really a lot of good advice here, so um, viewers, I, you should I didn't read out. them all. I just scanned through it and looked, looked for things that interested me. But another one, another good one from Bruce. Thank you. Yes. And I think this would be a good one, too, for various people, both on, on the developer side and the operations side, to um, kind of share some values about because it, a lot of this stuff ends up covering the whole life cycle from development to build time to run time. So it's, it takes the whole team to keep things secure. Speaking of security, everyone's been uh, everyone's been talking about the new Nintendo Switch. How cool it is! How interesting. Maybe, maybe not. I have not yet yep. played with one, but I have seen some uh, around the city. They look pretty interesting. But guess what? Guess who did not patch their shit? Now, to be fair, this bug came came out in August. Yeah, that's true. And the Switch has been out for two weeks. Exactly. They might they they might have known about it and said, "Well, no, let's leave it in." Right, and who knows now, when the you know the firmware golden image or whatever was baked and all of that kind of thing. Um, I'll, I'll read the bit that gives some context to the to the to the issue. Uh, the potential impact of these vulnerabilities for switch users is low. 
a switch isn't going to have the same amount of sensitive data on it that an iPhone or an iPad can. And there are far, sorry, and there are way fewer switch devices out there than iDevices. Right now, the switch doesn't even include a standalone internet browser, though WebKit is present on the system for logging into public Wi-Fi hotspots and, with some cajoling, you can use it to browse your Facebook feed. So it sounds like this code is in there just so you can log in to public Wi-Fi. That's why it's here. Right. But, so it almost certainly wasn't a huge priority, right? Like if your users won't be using it every day, it's not exactly the thing you pay the most attention to. But the exploit could potentially open the door for jailbreaking and running homebrew software in the Switch, which is a big incentive for people to start doing it. They, they buy this Switch, they want to put their own software on it. But as of this writing, the exploit doesn't look like it provides kernel access. But the next roundup item we have... Let's just switch right over there now. It's relevant to this. So Pegaswitch by Reese. Pegaswitch. What is Pegaswitch? Remind you of Pegasus? Yes, it does. The wing force? So it's it's an exploit toolkit for the Nintendo Switch, but they say it themselves, this does not currently enable homebrew software, but is is built to allow other hackers to work towards that goal. So I think they're just getting in first. They're calling them... They're trying to stake their claim on this market. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Hey, use our, use our toolkit. But I, I suppose that is, wouldn't be... I mean, it looks like they've got like a whole handy little um, almost SDK-like setup here so you can start developing your own vulnerabilities mm-hmm. or exploits. Mm-hmm, Yep. Interesting. This is pretty cool. I definitely have a soft spot for the the homebrew type crowds. I've put uh, Linux on yes. Wii's before and other type things, and yep. I, there's a yep. lot of fun to be had there, whether or not the vendor wants yep. you to do it or not. And um, right, there's always issues of, of piracy and other things, but really, a lot of it is just people want to be creative. They want to have more freedom with their devices. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And the key is, it is your device. You have bought that yes. device, right? Exactly. You may have licensed the software off it, but the hardware but, is yours. But the hardware is yours. I didn't shell out that three hundred dollars to not be able to override it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so this next one, I really just thought had your name written all over it, Mister Dan. Um, it really yes. goes to speak yes. about some of our favorite yes. file systems and the importance of backups. Yep. I want to point out that I, that R six ten I installed has ZFS on it as two thirty gig gig SSDs. So it's a uh, it's just a mirror, but it does have ZFS on it. So why do I mention SSDs? SSDs seem to be more vulnerable to bit rot than HDDs. Um, in this case in point, basically ZFS detected a checksum error. Boom, there you go. It means there's a data error in the drive. It's worse than a typical data error because this is an error that was not detected by the hardware. This is an error that was detected by the software, case in point, ZFS. So this error was not detected by CRC, for example. It was not detected by anything else. It was only known because ZFS did a checksum on the data before it wrote it to disk. 
And later on, it saw when it went to read that data, or perhaps during a scrub, which is reading the data, that the data it read did not match the checksum that it wrote. Therefore, the data is wrong. Now, what about the checksum? The checksum could be wrong too, but then there's checksums of checksums. How deep do we go? You go all the way to the top with checksums. Yeah, exactly. If you lose, if you lose that top bit, well, that's why you have copies of the data. Yeah, that's right. Why this you is why you have backups. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's super scary, and I feel like people, right? It doesn't happen to everyone. You know, you're not getting random corruption every week. So it's it's yep. one of those things that our human brains are just not very good at reasoning about. It's out of sight, out of mind. But like if you're just using ext4 or whatever, ntfs, this would have burned you, right? Maybe that's a whole JPEG file that's just worthless. Yep. In this guy's case, it wasn't the drive. It was the cables. <sighs> that's kind he of interesting, though. He had a 9211, which is a very well-known mm-hmm. um, SAS card, uh, which can be used with, with SATA drives. Highly recommended by the FreeNAS community. And what the guy had done is he was using a reverse cable, not a forward cable. So a reverse cable is one where you uh, plug it into the black back plane, and you have all your drives on the back plane, and then you bring it back to a motherboard. That's a reverse cable. Channel, correct me if I'm wrong. But a forward cable is what you plug into a HBA and run to the disks. And he had bought the wrong type. I, I've been, I have a whole lot of forward cables uh. here if someone wants to buy them when I should have got reverse cables. So I've made the same mistake. So... RAM errors can cause the same thing, um, but in this case, ZFS saved his ass with detecting that error, which was caused by the cable. And this is just so cool. Yeah, this that's is just awesome. So amazing. Yep, it really is a good article, just highlighting how awesome ZFS is, um, why you should be using it, and if you're not using it to store your sensitive yep. data, then eh, stop watching. Wait, no, don't stop watching TechStep. Put TechStep on in the background. Go upgrade your storage system. Awesome. Okay. Well, anything else you'd like to add? I think that wraps up this week's roundup. Um, usually, everyone talks about having CRC. Sorry, uh, ECC RAM. Right. Everyone talks about having ECC RAM with with ZFS or not at ZFS. Do you need it or not need it? You need the right cables. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the. Uh... That's the advice that they don't ever tell you. You need the right cables. need the right cables. Ah, that's great. All right. Well, this has been episode 310 of your TechSnap program. If you'd like to check out more of this fine program, go over to www.jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the show's archives, our show, uh, The Last Generation, a ton of other great shows. Really, I mean, you could watch that site for hours, hours, and hours. Plus, there's the calendar. Go find out when we're live in your time zone. Yeah, I know. I mean, I can't figure it out. I just do everything in UTC. It's the only thing that makes sense. But the calendar will figure that out for you. Come join us live. It's a lot of fun. You get to make title suggestions, hang out with us. If you'd like to do more of that, go on over to the subreddit, send us some feedback, or hit us up on Twitter. I am at Wes Payne. 
Dan is at TechSnap underscore Dan. I think that's about it. That's it this week. Make sure you come back next week. See you later, Dan. Bye, Wes. Bye, channel. Thank you. Mm-hmm.